Glad you could make it here this evening. Something's happening. <laughs> There's all the other things you could be doing this evening, so something's obviously turning or drawing you this way. Come and sit and listen to a Dhamma talk. So, uh, just to acknowledge that this particular you know, wherever you are at this particular point in time, you know, the process has taken place, something's happening for you, you're moving along, various questions, various uncertainties, various uh, uh, inspirations, probably various challenges are coming up in your life, and here you are in the middle of it, in the middle of cause and effect and conditions arising, some of them good, some of them bad. This is where we are. And this is the, the kind of, we call the field or the plane of cause and effect, of karma, vipaka, cause or action and effect. And uh, when we practice Dhamma, it's very much handling the stuff of cause and effect within the field of cause and effect. And when you consider karma, it's important to recognize this is not a, a teaching on predeterminism, that you know, you've got so much karma, therefore you are this and you will be that, and next lifetime you're going to be like this and you are like this because of that. And we're teaching a point, Buddha taught karma was uh, in order to facilitate the ending of suffering. The only reason he taught anything at all was to bring around the ending of suffering rather than to perpetuate uh, some sense of being stuck. So really what karma means, it means that right now one has the possibility to act and do something and bring around and effect change. And so it's uh, important to recognize this. Uh, there's an action, there's always an action of some kind that you can bring around that's going to be for your welfare and happiness. Yeah. And uh, there's a particular kind of karma that the Buddha talks about. This is there's a karma that leads to the end of it. All of us, in a way, are, are committed and instinctively geared up to actions that will make us feel better, happier, clearer, wiser, saner, more lovable, or something or the other. Yeah. And we have these are actions, this is a karma that doesn't lead to the end of karma. <laughs> Because uh, what is that we just experienced? This is what we're doing most of our lives. You should realize, yeah, it takes you to the next place, but that next place is another place you've got to do something else from, and do something else from, because the the effects are momentary or not completely satisfying, or lead to further effects. Yeah, and so it goes on. And this is very much karma, the actions that align themselves to the process of birth that we all are attuned to. Mm. Yeah. We're all attuned to having been born. And the message of that that we get as we're born is that we're in here, there's something out there. And our actions are primarily attuned to what's out there so that we can derive... Uh, Food, support, comfort, ward off danger, find partnership and so forth. This, this is the action of birth, karma that's associated with birth and the process of birth. All, all that birth can take us to, which is experiences of some happiness, 
and uh, some discontent, some sense of pleasure that tends to change, some challenges and pains, uh, and so forth. It takes us to more or less what you can experience through your senses, the, the, the happiness and the limitations of that. Yeah. That's karma that's aligned to birth. It doesn't go beyond birth. It doesn't go beyond the message and the cycle of birth. So the, the teaching is that when this, even when this very formation of the body expires, the karma continues, and another body is crystallized, forms with the same kind of message. It goes on and on and on. You know, so this is what we call birth again, or further birth, becoming. And the, but there's a way out of it, which is the karma that, li- that doesn't take... Uh, birth and the message of birth as the only message that's going because that message of birth means automatically means death doesn't it you know not today maybe but it must be that way it means separation death it means um sooner or later something's some organs are going to rebel upon us and do us nasty things (laughs) you know (laughs) <laughs> At least it means that, doesn't it? There's anybody that doesn't happen to. And so this is this is where that goes. And so there's a karma that leads out of that. And this is you can see simply speaking, this is the karma that uh, turns away from that process. The karma we call it turning the mind around. It's the first kind of uh, action or that uh, turns away or turns in another direction. Uh, I think it's important to recognize what the, the, the scope of what is meant by action, because we take, may take this in a very coarse way, like physical action, or, or very deliberate, I'm going to do this action. But any way in which energy is apprehended, and channeled, and directed, we call action. So any way that we think is action, a certain potential to engage and conceive is, is, ac- is accessed, channeled, steered, directed towards a result. So every thought is action, is a karma of some kind. We have this potential to think any old thing and actually stop thinking, but that, that potential is tapped, attuned to, picked up, channeled and directed. That's action. Yeah. So, you know, whether you're daydreaming or whatever, there's some kind of action is happening. Not all of it is necessarily even you're that much aware of, but there's some kind of bent or intentionality that's directing that. So there's action in thought. And the primary source of of all karma is, is karma of the heart or the mind, which isn't thought. It's is a deeper level than that. It's the like the very sense where we sense our we might say the very sense of me mm. if you find out when you ask yourself who's seeing or who hears this or what, what, what um, something happens to me that me that's what we mean by mind in Buddhism citta it's that sense of the the subject who from which experiences gen are which generates action and the recipient of it, the one who feels that they are touched, the one who things happen to, 
this is the mind, this is the primary source of karma and the recipient of its results. We call it mind because it's an immaterial experience. You could call it heart, you can call it awareness, you could call it soul if you like, if you wanted to be a little bit daring in Buddhist company. <laughs> Doesn't really matter because the important thing to recognize is it's not a thing. It's because it's momentary, it's changing, it's a kind of it's an engaged potential that, that channels karma. And the process of uh, Dharma practice is to, is to start to unravel that, yeah, so that it's not doing that all the time. And this process of unraveling is the very karma of Dharma. It's the action of Dharma, is to get in there and start to unravel, start to First of all, the, the unwholesome, the really tangled, tight, compulsive, reactive, in, you know, gripping, struggling, fighting, clawing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the, the really, you know, it, very deep being. Then the kind of more slowly moving things and, and then begin to explore even the wholesome impulses that we have. And say, this can be an unraveling of this. So, this towards stopping. So it's important to recognize that uh, Buddhism is basically about a how, it's not about a what. So it's always a little frustrating when we try to think, what, what is Nibbana? What's it like then? If there's Nibbana, then there must be something other than Nibbana. So Nibbana is this, Sangsara is that, so there's two of them, which is, you know, and so on. Um, you know, when are we, what is ultimate truth? Um, what's the nature of full awakening? You know, you give me the thing, give me the bit. And I can think, I got it, walk away with it and think about it. You know, I got it, I got the bit. So that's, that's the, that particular forming, you know, of even immaterial things like uh, awakening or enlightenment uh, is, is, a, is karma. You know, something acts, something engages in the thinking mind, we come up with a thing, and then what happens around that? We're delighted with it for a moment, and then we think, yeah, but does this mean that... <laughs> and what happens if, you know... Because that's the nature of a thought thing is doubtful, you know, because it's impermanent. So we experience a moment of certainty, then a sense of, oh yeah, but what about... You know, because that's the nature of a thing. It, it arises and it passes. And the, the passing of a certainty is called doubt. <laughs> <laughs> so whenever you try to grasp the Dharma in, your th- in the thinking mind, you end up with doubt. A lot of effort, a lot of intensity, complexities, and moments of kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what about... <laughs> And it, so it tells you one particular message is you can't, you can't, the grasping is an activity yeah, that does, that creates a thing. Yeah. So when we start to turn the mind around, we begin to really challenge these very habits to create anything out of anything. Yeah. When you try to grasp the, the Dharma as some kind of uh, you know, an emotional, is it peace, is it happy, is it joyful, is it bright? So then, you know, you can feel something tighten up around that. And the Buddha just said, well, it's, it's about stopping. 
Wow. <laughs> Let's go and do some stopping tonight. <laughs> Come out round my place and we'll stop together. <laughs> so it isn't that it's not necessarily even that skillful to think too much about Nibbana because it's not that appealing. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the last thing you want to do. <laughs> so you deal with the, the, the important things. But the, the point is that if you start to deal with the, the things that really are happening to you skillfully, then you get, the fl- you get in the tune, you get in the flow of it. And as certain things get... get you stop doing certain things, then that something is a fruition that means you can stop doing other things. If you stop doing um, you know, violence, uh, you stop doing violence to yourself, you know, self-abnegation, self-punishment, self-blame, stop doing violence to other creatures, then something else becomes available, which is the sense of compassion becomes available. Yeah. It's not that you go around have to do compassion. You stop doing violence. <laughs> the, the fruition of that, the sense of the result of that is you know, compassion. Yeah. So it's important to recognize that the, 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 the very, you might say, that the main feature of the kind of karma is the effort and the channeling to not do. And how that taken through, opens up and opens up and opens up to you coming down to the very main springs, the, the kind of deep-seated springs that are welling up of doing. And you see, do you need to do that? You know, where's it coming from? Is there, a, is there a way in which that need not be done? And then it's kind of like the, the release. So that's the process of it. But probably the most, so the, but the most important step is as a daily life practice is to, is to keep that sense of turning the mind around. This in itself takes, take, you know, keeps us in the flow of Dharma practice. Now what I mean is that, that, that conditioned by the senses and the body, uh, our, our energies and our attention and our mind goes out onto the multiplicity of things and possibilities and sense contacts, and, the, and so forth. It sees many, many different things, many places, many sights, many colors, many forms, many tastes, many experiences we could be having. So it goes out, and it, and, it, and it calibrates, which is the best, which is the worthiest, which is the most enjoyable, and so forth. So it goes out, and uh, it's very dazzling. As you all know, the contact with the multiplicity of things dazzles. And uh, very much in, a, in our daily life, when there's so much emphasis on this, the amount of, of things that are going on becomes so huge that the mind can just keep ricocheting. It goes into a kind of dazzle daze where it ricochets. That is, you hear something, you see something, you touch something, you smell something, something's saying something, or you're eating something, or you want to take a drink, and there's 15 choices of drink you could have. So, you know, the mind actually has to keep going out, handling all this stuff. We call this freedom. 
<laughs> don't take away my options, you know. So, you know, you want to have a cup of coffee. Well, let's not stop the story there, you know. So there's at least three or four different categories of decision-making that have to occur around that to make sure that it's the, it's what? There's something else you don't down your throat and gone. <laughs> yeah. This is called a freedom. And uh, it's, uh, but when you, so it gets very, the mind doesn't have the possibility to really penetrate the, the springs or the wellsprings of action because there's too much stuff happening. We're just bouncing, we're just ricocheting, going through habits and reactions and reflexes. Upon very, very, very simple primary um, impulses, the search for pleasure, satisfaction, the avoidance of distress and, hap- and unhappiness, the sense of safety, security, so forth. Very simple things, and you know, which is which is what birth is about. But these are the very things we need to actually examine. We need to not just have the mind going out onto how those can manifest in the world, but exploring the roots of these particular impulses. This is what we have: yeah, the impulse towards pleasure, towards satisfaction, comfort in the sense realm. Yeah the impulse towards a quality of, uh, we might say, immaterial well-being, you know, a sense of love, if you like, um, that kind of sense of value in our lives, and the, the instinct to be avoid uh, painful objects, blame, hurt, so forth. And these are what we act upon and you can see that the world is very much concerned with that uh, to the point where you have huge, 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 huge industries and energies trying to produce those very things for us. And the frustration is that, yeah, we do get some and yet not enough, is it? You know, how much more energy has to go into what they call defense before we'll finally feel safe. <laughs> you see, it's not going to happen, is it? <laughs> so these are, these are, of course, big questions. If you want to feel safe, that's not a silly thing to feel, but is that, you know, is that going to do it? And it's really to start to examine where is safety, where is uh, well-being, where is uh, comfort and happiness, where is that? You know, and we start to question these because this outgoing mind spreads it out onto the world and it manifests and it complicates and it produces more and more things. It doesn't get to the end of it. And uh, so the Buddha said it's natural for every creature to wish for this. I'm telling you, the way to do this is turn it around, explore the roots of those impulses and explore what prevents that happening for you in your own 
intimacy of your own being in your own mind, if you think. And he said in his own exploration, you know, realizing the roots are really the heart of the matter. Not the outward growths. As you recognize in any plant, the most important thing is really the roots, not the flowers. What are the roots of the mind? This is, this is what we start to cultivate in meditation. This is turning the mind around. He said there are three particular um, questions you know, I ask myself. started to notice uh, when the mind inclines towards um, sensuality, that is, grabbing, holding identifying with, uh, centering itself upon sense contact as a source of well-being. Does this lead to my affliction or non-affliction? Does it lead to the affliction of others? And he figured, contemplating that, it makes me what? As we do this, it makes me uh, impatient, impulsive, uh, tends towards greed, uh, tends towards jealousy, tends towards that, it leads, not to, it leads to my affliction. When you explore the roots of it, you feel the sense of any kind of uh, grasping at sense, sense, sense experience that I have. Yeah. I either want to have more of it, if it's good, or I, or I feel cheated if I don't get enough of it, <laughs> or I feel a little bit sad when it passes. That's if it's good. <laughs> so that's, that's the good news, you know. Let alone the times when you reach out and it isn't there. So that obviously we're in a world where there is sense contact. What actually happens at the place of contact? What do we do? What is the event at contact? If there's a moving out and a grasping at it, it leads to one's affliction. Can there be a non-grasping of it? And he contemplated and he recognized, yeah, there can be a non-grasping of it. So why don't I do that? Why don't I, when I, when I sent, experience something through the senses, to let that, let that be. To, not, to acknowledge the movement towards sensuality, but, but to let it be. See what it does by itself. So we contemplate, we work like that. And it's just to kind of, just to sort of have that sense of inquiry. Because around um, uh, the, the thing that turns the mind outward is the perceptions, the impressions, the meanings, the significance that is applied yeah. to, to sense objects. So, I mean, since I, I was in a came to America in the middle of April and you know you go through cities and towns you've driven around this place called Dunkin Donuts and you know Sam's Donuts and Donut Parlour Donuts Donuts you know it's kind of Donut 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 it's somehow <laughs> impressing on the mind as something that can be written in neon signs you know flashing signs this is definitely 
you know, it's out there and it's, it's flashing, it's neon, and people queue up for these things. This is important. <laughs> That's the meaning of it, isn't it? It's not a literal meaning, it's a perceptual meaning. Yeah. So, and, and then, um, so I think about three days ago, I was at Bayagiri, and some people turned up with donuts. <laughs> so all this time in America, I had been donut deprived. Can you believe it? <laughs> so, people, I said, so I said to this person, oh, I've been in America for, since April and I haven't had a donut yet. <laughs> this one said, well, here they are. There's donuts. And there were several kinds of donuts with chocolate on them, cream on them, big ones, small ones. There's several kinds of donuts. So he went through the arms round and I thought, which donuts for me? And I thought, okay. And I grabbed one with chocolate on it. Donut. And I ate the donut. It was just a donut. <laughs> there were no neon lights. There were no flashing signs. <laughs> there was nothing to queue up for. It was just a donut. <laughs> it was like that. It wasn't bad. It was just that. It was saying, you know. The sense world is all right, but it's saying, look, look, I'm here, but don't ask me to make you ecstatic, okay? <laughs> I can't do that, you know. I'm just donuts. <laughs> but at the same time, one isn't kind of having an anti-donut crusade. There's something wrong with them, but it's just like that. You don't have to grab. They come and they go. So it's just kind of recognizing that. And then what actually happens when you know, a sense object hits the mind and you get that perception of, wow, wow, you know. And then you notice that kind of wow, wow. And you, you kind of don't buy into it. You, you, you recognize that the kind of wow bit is not the object. Donuts don't go wow. <laughs> by themselves, they're just there. So, <laughs> it's, you know, this kind of veneer or varnish of perceptual stuff. And you recognize that, that actually that, this kind of uh, lacquering of the sense realm is, um, yeah, it's obviously something that is there. And yet, it's also quite... Um, disturbing really to sense how much we can expect out of sense realm you know so you know eat overeating guzzling you know buying consuming you know just buying new stuff 15 pairs of shoes so forth, you know, bigger, better, newer, faster, quicker, bluer, greener, redder, tastier, strawberries on it, 15 different kinds of, you know. A lot of energy gone for the wow, isn't there? And uh, something, something, you know, it's more than just kind of uh, excessive. It also means there's a big, um, a lot of energy not going somewhere else. <laughs> 
which is like, uh, hmm, how could I, uh, how could we sort of share things? <laughs> how could we, instead of making this little patch, you know, full of all these wow perceptions, could we actually just distribute some of the energy, some of the wealth, some of the food, some of the resources? Couldn't it turn into generosity? So you see that the, the, uh, the grabbing in the sense realm also Im- means there's, a, there's a, 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 a greed. We may not, it's a strong word, we may not acknowledge it, uh, but there's a blindness to uh, uh, you know, the, the poverty and the anguish. Mm. And perhaps a blindness to the kind of you know, why we are so much from oral or sensual gratification. What aren't we doing in our lives to make ourselves feel happy that we have to seek it on, you know, so da 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 da. Hmm. And uh, it's the, often we don't really get the chance to check that because the, 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 the dazzle doesn't allow you room to necessarily really reflect on what's going on. You don't know, one doesn't know. Mm. Now all the kind of resources of the, of the world, the earth, the planet, uh, get used up. We don't really need that much. So could it turn towards simplicity? Could, it, could out of that sense of seeing through this, uh, this wow of perception, could it, when we see through that, could that not actually lead to generosity, sharing, and simplicity by itself, without saying, you've got to do this, you've got to be this, but just, well, no, I don't, you know, you see, you see through that perception, and naturally what arises out of that are two, two um, features. One is simplicity or renunciation, and one is generosity. And we might also say we begin to be more content with what we have. And these are very important things because uh, simplicity means that our mind is no longer so um, active, buzzing around, preoccupied. It's got more space. Contentment means we're happier in ourselves. Generosity means we're actually feeling the worth of, of what we can do. We can actually bring forth something that's for the benefit of others that makes us feel good. Generosity makes us feel good. So you're turning the mind around. You actually start to turn the very energies of acquisition and gratification into simplification, generosity, and contentment. And that's a big, big um, result. You, know, you do that karma like that. You do. There's a big result there, which is for everybody's welfare. Nobody loses. <laughs> that's the beauty of it. The Buddha also, he said, when I have an experience of some ill will occurs. This is when he was meditating as an aspirant. He wasn't a realized Buddha. When I get a sense of ill will, what does that lead to? Ill will is a kind of closing of the heart, isn't it? Yeah. There's something that one's will is ill, no longer uh, loving, uh, 
sharing, sending energy out. There's a kind of closure of that. We may be, have ill will because of fear, um, because of threat. We may be um, depressed or something of this nature, but essentially something closes, the heart closes. This is to my affliction. This is not to anybody else's uh, welfare. Can it be put aside? Can I recognize ill will and put it aside? Now, there's a particular action that's required there, a particular focus, yeah, and turning it around. And then he said, practicing non ill will. And when we talk like this, you know, non ill will sounds like, well, what's a non ill will? Like, what's a non elephant or a non. <laughs> but you, you experience ill will and you let go of it. It's like that. You can experience that sense of, of bearing a grudge, holding on to an uh, impression, and you just relax that. You could call it forgiveness. Um, you could call it loving kindness. Um, it's this kind of quality. But it's essentially it's recognizing our potential to feel hurt, lessened, cheated, betrayed, you know, that, so we freeze up, threatened, and I can be bigger than this. I can, I can be bigger than this. I don't have to be shut in by this. This shuts me down. I can come out of this. And uh, this is something we can do. It's very beautiful. Many is one of the most beautiful things we can recognize as human beings. I remember just witnessing some of the conflicts in Northern Ireland that come into into one's my awareness as living in Britain, and some of the most moving ones are when you know somebody's been shot up by one side or the other in this conflict and then the you know say a young man's been shot or uh, or blown up or something by one side or the other and the parent comes on and says uh, I don't I don't want to hold any ill will uh, I've decided I just I just want the violence to stop that's all I don't want a punishment I don't want revenge I just want the violence to stop whoever it was I forgive them you know, we, we can do that. Because we see that uh, just holding ill will is not going to cure the harm that's been caused and it, and it, you know, in the past, and it's not going to make the present any better, and it's probably going to lead to more harm in the future. <laughs> yeah. So you can review just what, what it does. When we look at the, where we feel the grudges, We've been, you know, somebody's insulted me or whatever. Then just noticing that and you know, holding it. Uh, does it make the past any better? Does it make the present any better? Is it going to make the future any better? No, no, no. <laughs> so then can there be a release of that? And it, it doesn't mean, it, it means actually just feeling the kind of tension and the energy of that and coming out of it, you can be bigger than this. Your life doesn't have to be restricted by this. And it's important to take that opportunity.
they're all, you know, they're all kinds of, uh, you know, people we can feel grieved by, and uh, even by ourselves. We can bear ill will towards ourselves over things we regret doing. And uh, the Buddha said, when you experience this kind of sense of guilt and uh, gloom and regret and despond about things you've done, uh, just to hold on to it does no good, is unskillful, unprofitable, uh, not worthy. Mm. You just need to recognize this is something now you know is not to be done again and then you start practicing loving-kindness towards yourself. Which doesn't mean that, you know, that action was good, just means let's do some healing now. Let's do some sense of giving oneself some, some warmth and some, uh, and some uh, value, some, some, some positive attention. Forgiveness, if you like. And uh, then this is immensely valuable because if you don't, we don't do that, then many times what we do instead is we compensate for the negative or the regret by distracting ourselves or by justifying it, by fudging it. And uh, as much as I've done this, as much as I've been right, <laughs> you know, I was right in that argument when I was right and they did me wrong. As much as I've held on to that, <laughs> which I have done, you know, and, and brought to mind these people who've done me wrong and remembered them and thought of the wrong they'd done me and held them in that position, for as long as I've done that, I've suffered. <laughs> and I've done no, no good to myself or to others. Uh, and yet the moment one recognises, you know, whatever they did is theirs, now what, what I can do is just to spread kindness towards them, towards myself. You know, that's something I can do. It, it ennobles me, it gives me freedom, it loosens me, it gives me some energy. It means my life is, has some way to go now. And just to, you know, rather than coming to the end of your life, when you sit down and you these kind of regrets and grudges in the mind, just have that kind of way of continually cleaning cleaning the traces of, um, of regret, negativity, and so forth. And then from that is the blossoming of, of uh, kindness, forgiveness, uh, and openness. And uh, third, he said, whenever I, I experience a sense of cruelty, you might say violence, you know, it's called wihingsa, uh, which is close, uh, is this kind of source of violence, which that which dismisses, condemns, scorns, despises, brushes off, belittles, caricatures, lampoons, <laughs> puts down, <laughs> shuts up, suppresses, <laughs> ignores, <laughs> and so forth, oneself or others, you know, belittles, you know, makes small cuts uh, oneself or others for any reason. Whenever we do that, does this lead to one's own welfare or that to, to anybody else's welfare? 
in the past, the present, or the future? No. <laughs> Can we stop doing that? Yes. And so just to acknowledge, this means you, you get, to re- get in touch with how violent we are. We all, have, we all have potential for violence. You know, when you look at the history of the world, it's very easy to see what the most violent creature on the planet is. The most destructive violent creature on the planet is the, the human being. The only one that methodically and systematically to, to destroys its own kind is the human being. And we do this not just physically, but verbally. Buddha said the onslaught of verbal daggers in which we slash each other. And we do it emotionally with the, the scorn, the condemning, the belittling, the caricaturing, the lampooning, the despising. Mm. You feel it. And, and then, you know, the justification for that. <laughs> the way that, you know, when the mind doesn't explore the roots of this, violence is called um, justice. <laughs> Violence is called, um, you know, humour. Mm. Violence is called, uh, you know, a number of names. And so when you turn around, you just feel the energy of it. And you can, it, and without really necessarily physically acting, but that in one which wishes to push away, belittle, reduce, um, crush, take space away from, not allow the presence of another, this kind of quality. And so when we refrain from doing that, when you recognize that and just put it down, what occurs? A sense of compassion occurs. It's not you have to, you know, you're not making a thing out of being more compassionate, but just you let go of violence, compassion arises. And these are the most, most accurate ways to really um, cultivate these positive qualities is by coming out of the, of the here and now experience of the, those negative senses. And they are very important because these, in a way, these uh, negative experiences are almost defined by these karma of birth, which if we follow it blindly... Is about you know, is about um, you know grabbing and getting all you want. So even uh, animals will do that. You, know, like you see, cows will actually eat themselves to death if they're not you know, if they're allowed to, because <laughs> uh, it's just a kind of fun- fundamental instinct in, in embodiment is to have that going. Uh, most uh, creatures don't have the kind of minds that we have to imagine. You know, so cows can't think of grass with chocolate, grass with walnuts, gr- grass frappe. <laughs> so, <laughs> so forth. So, so they, uh, you know, it's a fairly... Whereas we've got... The unfortunate thing about human beings is we've got the ability to proliferate around greed and make it vast <laughs> so these are these are kind of like you know the, the, the energies of birth 
And whenever you turn away from it, you're not just being a nice person, you know, being a nice renunciant or being a nice loving person, but you're actually very, very radically shifting the energies that normally would go towards further birth into something that's actually lessening the impetus towards birth. Because if you recognize it, uh, you know, non-greed is not very exciting. It's uh, renunciation is a pretty cooling kind of word. In a way, you know, if you use it, people will immediately think you mean something like, you know, asceticism or uh, you're giving up all sorts of comfort. It doesn't mean that. It means, and it's something that everyone can do. It's not something where you're trying to be the most renounced person on the block. Because <laughs> it's, not, it's not about becoming something. It's about that recognizing that energy that says, I'm going to be better, happier, more wonderful if I get one of these. And going, But I've done that 20,000 times <laughs> already. <laughs> Why don't we just turn it the other way and see what happens? You know. Oh. And it's not, you don't become anything, you, something opens up, you get more space in your life. So what's starting to occur through the, the non-doing, the undoing of those compulsions, is not that you then get compulsively as a renunciant, but that you, you get more spacious. You, ah, there's more room. And there's a little less of that intense, you know, reactive self there. There's more openness, more space, more silence. And that's very, that's very enjoyable. You f- begin to find the source of comfort that we were looking for is actually right there in the roots of the mind. We begin to undo some of the, the false perceptions that occur. How many of us, uh, how many people in the world naturally seek love and affection? Isn't that is something wrong with that? Or is it something that actually we all seek in some way or another? You know, through, or you seek this in a very obvious way, or just friendships with people, neighbours, family, partners, friends, associates, monks, you know, fellow monks, you feel warm and affectionate towards, you feel some sense of uplift with that. Isn't that a kind of fundamental uh, you know, quality that we seek to make our lives uh, bright, to give us a sense of, of uh, that we are actually uh, harmonizing with other people. It's a kind of test. You know, we're living in harmony with other people. We should be able to feel some sense of warmth, affection, some sharing of energy with others. So it's not that there's something wrong with that. But the way that uh, we actually accomplish this most fully is by letting go of the potential for fear, judgment, criticism, intolerance, you know, nervousness, anxiety, all those forms that are about you know, subtle and gross senses of ill will. And you get a sense of your, your quality of loving kindness then becomes something that's much more um, oceanic. This doesn't have to be triggered by one person's particular actions or just this person or just this one and that one 
you know. You begin to see the lovable in all beings. You know, the, that which gives you a sense of, because you can connect, you have no closed doors to other beings. And you get the sense of being touched and interested. Uh, you see the good in, in all beings. And so there's that sense of uh, feeling rich and, in, in, and uh, affectionate towards all beings. And this is where the Buddha is living. Mm. So he lives with a sense of great, great uh, loving-kindness and affection for all beings. And yet the Buddha's living in some ways a kind of very cool and sober and uh, sometimes seemingly quite solitary life. But uh, with a heart free of ill will. So then actually the beauty of that is that your, your loving kindness is not dependent upon something that comes and goes. Something that you can be separated from something that changes, something that gets kind of just down to a, you know, a particular person's sum of their behaviour, some of the time. <laughs> that kind of gradually shrinks. <laughs> it's this bit of your behaviour, some of the time. Because, <laughs> you, you know, when it comes to grasping, that's what happens. The grasping mind kind of closes things down. So you don't actually get the fullness of loving-kindness by grasping at love. You get it through letting go of the potential to feel disinterested, bored, irritated, nervous, you know, the sense is that that which shuts us off from it. And in that there's a lot less, um, there's a lot less of that which configures us. So all these things lead towards a, a diminution of, uh, of that uh, object-seeking uh, and from the object-seeking the how we're located as belonging to this, having that uh, you know, we become less and less uh, finite. So the, the sense of how you, when you cultivate these quite basic experiences uh, then they actually by themselves they lead to a blossoming which is more boundless uh, and free. And that, that's, the, that's the point of it. The stopping um, of greed, hatred and delusion. This is, this is, the, this is what the Nibbana is about. And you begin to get a feeling for that in the, the way that you can pragmatically, you know, just check and stop some of these, you know, birth tendencies, these becoming tendencies, these self tendencies <coughs> in the mind. <coughs> it's important to, to recognise that, uh, you know, Dharma is actually something that is accessible to us. It's a kind of, when we practice with, in terms of karma, it's something that you can practice from the most, uh, you know, apparently external activities of your life, right through into the most subtle meditations. It's, it's the same 
Essentially, it's the same thing. You turn the mind around, and you come to look into the roots, and you, rec- you begin to question, does this, is this about holding on, or is it about letting go? Uh, and then to recognize there is a letting go, and to recognize the letting go actually leads to a, a brighter or fuller or a more beneficial state. This is the kind of continual question the process of Dhamma is like that. And you can take that from just going into the supermarket and deciding that you're only going to buy what you came in for. <laughs> and walking through the glitter, the special offers, the how you're going to save yourself $40 by spending 80 <laughs> All this stuff. And particularly the stuff that hangs around the checkout, which is all the, the last, you know, the last assault. <laughs> I just say, just I came in for a razor blade. I'm going out with a razor blade. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, just walk through this. So you can practice it in lay life. It's not something that's peculiar monastic. In fact, you, you have to work harder at it. You know, in a way monks, you've got it kind of easy in some ways because it's kind of set up that way. But this isn't about you know becoming a renunciant. It's about actually engaging and practicing. Again, you know, with those tendencies that say, well, just a little bit more, or just another one of those, or wow, <laughs> a new one of those, you know, feel that, feel that, you know, you, you've been there, you've been there, <laughs> we've all been there, where did it go, where did it get you to, <laughs> where did it take you to, <laughs> empty wallet, you know, thing of beauty is a joy for a day, <laughs> until the next offer, where did it, then, then just you cut through that, and you're actually doing something very powerful, and you're challenging the force of perception. This kind of stuff that that clads everything with uh, greed, hatred, and delusion, and it's only there that it's that's where it is. There's no, there's nothing, there's no object, there's no form that actually has greed in it. You know, there's no form that has a desire in it. Desire doesn't come beaming out of bananas or chocolate or ice cream. It doesn't, it's just stuff. That stuff is not a problem. The problem is this, the perception, the significance, the meanings, the images, the kind of charisma and that, that we're actually giving to these things. So in the stopping of that, you know, repeatedly stopping of that, that is immediate, palpable, doable freedom here and now. You know. And it's something you can keep doing. If you do it, just train yourself doing it, you know, going to the gas station, going to the drugstore, walking through the supermarket. You just do it on a level and you're actually learning a particular skill that um, you, know, you can keep going and it, you begin to then, you've opened up something that's going to benefit in your meditation and you've begun to exercise a particular form of karma that then becomes your, your natural form and then this is going to affect, goes into your meditation because then you begin to sense the subtler forms of greed, the subtler forms of acquisition the subtler forms of blocking and denial, the subtler forms of violence towards yourself, 
blaming, accusations, beating up that occur in meditation. <laughs> right? The subtler forms of narcissism, you know, I've got to be one of these. You've done that, you've been there, you know. How many times, you want to do that again? <laughs> you know, you were doing that at high school, you were doing that in college, you were doing that at dances, you were trying to, you know, coming up with a narcissism. Could you just, you know, where did it get you to? Drop it. <laughs> and then we do it in meditation. Because these, these syndromes are not, uh, they may be acquired or, or, in, or from, they're acquired in birth and they're generally emphasized and amplified through contact with the sensory world. But they still pertain to, we might say, our meditative life, the same kind of messages. So it's whenever you work on the external in that particular way, discerning the roots of external activity, you're also discerning the roots of internal stress. And you can cut the two, you cut the same thing in daily life as you do in meditation. This is the karma that leads to the end of karma. <laughs>